0: Hello, wild wanders, and welcome to our wicked window of the internet. Won't you pour yourself a cup of your best tea, light a candle to stave away the darkness, and cozy up as we tell you a story? Widdershins is a weekly podcast where we will dive into dusty bookshelves and winding, darkened pathways, looking to stories from folklore, fairy tales, mythology, legend, and beyond. We are accompanied by our trusted bard and guitarist, Joe Saborin, who will be live composing for us as our characters find their way out of the thickets and snarls of their tales. My name is Ashley Nunez, and I will be your narrator to peer over bough and branch, following our heroes and foes into far distant lands, both familiar and unknown. Let us begin Once Upon a Time. Bird By the Brothers Grimm There was once a sorcerer Who disguised himself As a poor man Then go begging From door to door In order to capture pretty girls No one knew what he did with them For they were never seen again One day He appeared at the door of a man who had three beautiful daughters. He looked like a poor weak beggar and had a basket on his back, as if to collect alms. He asked for something to eat, and when the eldest girl went to the door and was about to hand him a piece of bread, he just touched her, and she jumped into his basket. Then he made long legs and rushed off to get her to his house, which was in the middle of a dark forest. Everything in the house was splendid. He gave the girl everything she wanted and said, "'My darling, I'm sure you'll be happy here with me, "'for you'll have everything your heart desires.'" After a few days went by, he said, "'I have to take a journey. "'I must leave you alone for a short while. "'Here are the keys for the house. "'You can go anywhere you want and look around at everything, but.'" Don't go into the room that this little key opens. I forbid it under penalty of death. He also gave her an egg and said, carry it with you wherever you go because if it gets lost, something terrible will happen. She took the keys and the egg and promised to do exactly what he had said. After he left, she went over the house from top to bottom, taking a good look at everything. The rooms glittered with silver and gold, and it seemed to her that she had never before seen such magnificence. Finally, she came to the forbidden door and planned to walk right by it, but... Curiosity of her. She examined the key and it was just like the others. And she put it in the lock and just turned it a little bit. The door sprang open. But what did she see when she entered? In the middle of the room was a large bloody basin filled with dead people who had been chopped to pieces. Next to the basin was a block of wood with a gleaming axe on it. She was so horrified that she dropped the egg she was holding into the basin. She took it right out and wiped off the blood, but to no avail, for the stain immediately returned. She wiped it and scraped at it, but it just wouldn't come off. Not much later... The man returned from his journey, and the first thing he demanded were the keys and the egg. She gave them to him, but she was trembling. And when he saw the red stains, he knew she had been in the bloody chamber. You entered the chamber against my wishes, he said. Now you will go back in against yours. Your life is over. He threw her down, dragged her in by the hair, chopped her head off on the block, and hacked her into pieces so that her blood flowed all over the floor. Then he tossed her into the basin with the others. Now I'll go and get the second one, said the sorcerer, and he went back to the house dressed as a poor man begging for alms. When the second daughter brought him a piece of bread, he caught her as he had the first just by touching her. He carried her off, and she fared no better than her sister. Her curiosity got the better of her. She opened the door to the bloody chamber, looked inside it, and when he returned, she had to pay with her life. The man went to fetch the third daughter, but she was clever and cunning. After handing over the keys and egg, he went away and she put the egg in a safe place. She explored the house and entered the forbidden chamber. And what did she see there in the basin were her two sisters cruelly murdered and chopped pieces? but she set to work gathering all their body parts and put them in their proper places heads, torsos, arms, legs when everything was in place the pieces began to move and join themselves together the two girls opened their eyes and came back to life overjoyed they kissed and hugged each other on his return, the man asked at once for the keys and egg. When he could not find a trace of blood on the egg, he declared, "'You have passed the test, and you shall be my bride.' He no longer had any power over her and had to do her bidding. "'Very well,' she replied, "'but you first must take a basketful of gold to my father and mother, "'and you must carry it on your own back. "'In the meantime, I'll make the wedding arrangements.' She ran to her sisters, whom she had hidden in a little room, and said, Now is the time when I can save you. That brute will be the one who carries you home. But as soon as you get home, send help for me. She put both girls into a basket and covered them with gold until they could not be seen. Then she summoned the sorcerer and said, Pick up the basket and go, but don't you dare stop to rest along the way. I'll be looking out of my little window, keeping an eye. The sorcerer lifted the basket onto his shoulders and set off with it. But it weighed so much that sweat began to pour down his face. He sat down to rest for a moment, but right away one of the girls cried out from the basket, I'm looking at my little window and I can see that you're resting. Get a move on. He thought his bride was calling to him and he went on his way. A second time wanted to sit down but again the voice called out i'm looking out my little window and i see that you're resting get a move on whenever he stopped the voice called out and he had to move along until finally gasping for breath and groaning he carried the basket of gold with the two girls in it to their parents house back at home the bride was preparing the wedding celebrations to which she had invited all the sorcerer's friends She took a skull with grinning teeth, crowned it with jewels and a garland of flowers, carried it upstairs, and set it down at an attic window facing out. When everything was ready, she crawled into a barrel of honey, cut open a feather bed, and rolled in the feathers until she looked like a strange bird that not a soul would recognize. She left the house and on her way met some wedding guests who asked... Fitcher's Feathered Bird, where are you from? From Feathered Fitz's Fitcher's house I've come. And the young bride there, what has she done? She swept the house all the way through and from the attic window. She's looking right at you. She met the bridegroom who was walking back home very slowly. He too asked, "'Oh, Fitcher's feathered bird, where are you from? "'From Feathered Fitz's Fitcher's house I've come, "'and my young bride there, what has she done?' "'She swept the house all the way through, "'and from the attic window she's looking right at you.'" The bridegroom looked up and saw the decorated skull. He thought it was his bride, nodded and waved to her. But when he got to the house with his guests... The brothers and relatives who had been sent to rescue the bride were already there. They locked the doors to the house so that no one
1: could escape.
0: Then they set fire to it so that the sorcerer and his crew burned. The Mask of the Red Death, by Edgar Allan Poe. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, where the pest ban would shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow man. And the whole seizure progress and termination of the disease. Were the incidents of half an hour, <laughs> but the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among his knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welted the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or a frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. (laughs) The external world would take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think the prince had provided all the appliances of there were buffoons. There were improvisatory. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There was beauty. There was wine. All these security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth months of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends in a masked ball Of the most unusual magnificence It was a voluptuous scene, the masquerade But first let me tell of the rooms in which it was held There were seven An imperial suite, in many palaces however such suites form a long and straight vista while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn... A novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That all the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows... The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabra. Amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof, there was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite each window a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass so glaringly illumined and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its presence. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. The pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar An emphasis that at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus, the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly, the musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotions. And then after the lapse of 60 minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies, there came another chiming of the clock. And there were the same disconcert and tremulousness in meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decorum of more fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fete. It was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has since been seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There were Much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible. And not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers, there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of the velvet and then for a moment. All is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand. But the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells And the dreams live and writhe To and fro more Again the music swells And the dreams live merrily than ever Taking a hue from the many tinted windows Through its streams The rays from the tripods But to the chamber Which lies most westwardly of the seven There are now none of the maskers who venture For the night is waning away And there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes and the blackness of the sable drapery of Paul's. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went worryingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told And the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, but there was this uneasy cessation of all things. Now that there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more time into the meditation's of the thoughtful among those who reveled, and thus too it happened perhaps that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or a murmur expressive of disprobation and surprise that finally of terror of horror In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question outherited Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. "'there are chords in the heart of the most reckless "'which cannot be touched without emotion. "'Even with the utterly lost, "'to whom life and death are made equally just, "'there are matters of which no jest can be made. "'The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel "'that in the costume and bearing of the stranger "'neither wit nor propriety existed. "'A figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to toe in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured if not approved by the mad revelers about. But the murmur had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood and his broad brow with all the features of his face was besprinkled with scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon the spectral image which with a slow and solemn movement as if more fully to sustain its royale stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares who stood near him who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery seize him and unmask him that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. it was in the eastern or blue chamber "'in which stood the Prince Prospero "'as he uttered these words. "'They rang throughout the seven rooms "'loudly and clearly, "'for the Prince was a bold and robust man, "'and the music had become hushed "'at the waving of his hand. "'It was in the blue room "'where stood the Prince, "'the group of pale courtiers by his side. "'At first, as he spoke, "'there was a slight rushing movement of the group "'in the direction of the intruder, "'who at the moment was also near at hand.' And now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe, with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard prince's person and while the vast assembly as if with one impulse shrank from the centers of the room to the walls he made his way uninterruptedly but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first through the blue chamber to the purple through the purple to the green through the green to the orange through this again to the white and even thence the violet air a decided movement had been made to arrest him It was then, however, that Prince Prosper, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, which none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly his pursuer there was a sharp cry and the dragger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet upon which instantly afterward fell prostrate in death the prince prospero then Summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revellers at once threw themselves into the black apartment and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony wall, gasped in unutterable horror, finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay. And the flames of the tripods expired in darkness and decay. And the red death held illimitable dominion over all. Wittershins is created by Ashley Nunez of Old Growth Alchemy and folk musician Joe Saborin in the presence of their curious cat Django, a few too many half-drunk cups of tea, and far too many begrudgingly half-completed art projects. If you'd like to follow along Joe and his musical machinations, you can find him at Joe Saborin Music on Facebook and Instagram or joesaborin.com. For more glimpses into the wild woods of story, botanical libations, and central ephemera, you can find me, Ashley, at Old Growth Alchemy on Facebook and Instagram, or at oldgrowthalchemy.com. Or you can become patrons to us both on Patreon. Until next time, friends new and old, we'll be sure to keep the kettle on with a seat open for you by the fire.